Chapter 19 of The Glory of Clementina Wing by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 19 Clementina went to bed a happier woman than she had been for many a day. Distrusting the ministrations of the Chinese nurse, she had set up a little bed for Sheila in her own room. The child lay there fast asleep the faithful Pinky projecting from a folded arm in a staring and uncomfortable attitude of vigilance. Clementina's heart throbbed as she bent over her. All that she had struggled for and had attained, mastery of her art, fame and fortune, shrank to triviality in comparison with this glorious gift of heaven. She remembered scornful words she had once spoken to Tommy. Woman has always her sex hanging round the neck of her spirit. She recognised the truth of the saying, and thanked God for it. She undressed very quietly, and walked about the room in stocking feet, feeling a strange sacredness in the presence of the sleeping child. She was happier, too, in that she had forgiven Quixtus. For the first time since she had known him, she felt a curiosity regarding him, a desire for his friendship. Scarcely formulated, arose a determination to bring something vital into his life. As the notable housewife, entering a forlorn man's neglected house, longs to throw open windows, shake carpets, sweep down cobwebs, abolish dingy curtains, and fill the place with sunlight and chintz and other gaiety, so did Clementina long to sweep and garnish Quixtus's dusty heart. He had many human possibilities. After all, there must be something sound in a man who had treasured in his mind the memory of her picture. Sheila and herself between them, would transform him into a gaunt angel. She fell asleep, smiling at the thought. Clementina did not suffer fools gladly. That was why, thinking Quixtus a fool, she had not been able to abide him for so many years. And that was why she could not abide the fat Chinese nurse, who showed herself to be a mass of smiling incompetence. "'The way she washes the child makes me sick,' she declared. "'If I see much more of her heathen idol's grin, I shall go mad and bite her.' So the next day, Clementina, with Quixtus as a decorative adjunct, hunted up consular and other authorities, and made with them the necessary arrangements for shipping her off to Shanghai, for which she secretly pined, by the next outward-bound steamer. When they got to London, she would provide the child with a proper Christian nurse, who would bring her up in the fear of the Lord and in habits of tidiness, and in the meanwhile she herself would assume the responsibility of Sheila's physical well-being. "'I'm not going to have a flighty young girl,' she remarked. "'I could tackle her, but you couldn't.' "'Why should I attempt to tackle her?' asked Quixtus. "'You'll be responsible for the child when she stays in Russell Square.' "'Russell Square?' he echoed. "'Yes. She will live partly with you and partly with me, three months with each of us alternately. Where did you expect the child to live?' "'Upon my soul,' said he, "'I haven't considered the matter. Well, well—' He walked about the vestibule, revolving this new and alarming proposition— to have a little girl of five planted in his dismal, decorous house. What in the world should he do with her? It would revolutionise his habits. Clementina watched him out of a corner of her eye. "'You didn't suppose I was going to have all the worry, did you?' Oh, "'No, no,' he said hastily. "'Of course not. I see, I must share all responsibilities with you. Only, won't you find it living with me rather dull? You can keep a lot of cats and dogs and rocking-horses and give children's parties.' said Clementina. 
Sheila, who had been apparently absorbed in the mysteries of the Parisian toilet of a flaxen-haired doll, which Clementine had bought for her at an extravagant price, cheerfully lifted up her face. "'Auntie says that when I come to stay with you, I am to be mistress of the house.' "'Indeed,' said Quixtus. "'And I am to be a real lady, and sit at the end of the table, and entertain the guests.' "'I suppose that settles it,' he said with a smile. "'Of course it does,' said Clementina. And she wondered whether his masculine mind would ever be in a condition to grasp the extent of the sacrifice she was making. That day the remains of Will Hamsley were laid to rest in the little Protestant cemetery. The consular chaplain read the service. Only the two elders stood by the graveside, thinking the ordeal too harrowing for the child. Clementina wept, for some of her wasted youth lay in the coffin. But Quixtus stood with dry eyes and set features. Now he was sane. Now he could view life calmly. He knew that his memory of the dead would always be bitter. Reason could not sweeten it. It were better to forget. Let the dead past bury its dead. The dead man's child he would take to his heart for her own helpless sweet sake. Should she, in years to come, turn round and repay him with treachery and ingratitude, it would be but the way of all flesh. In the meanwhile he would be loyal to his word. After the service came to a close he stood for a few moments gazing into the grave. Clementina edged close to him and pointed down to the coffin. "'He may have wronged you, but he trusted you,' she said in a low voice. "'That's true,' said Quixtus. And as they drove back in silence, he murmured once or twice to himself, half audibly, "'He wronged me, but he trusted me.' That evening they started for Paris. Undesirous of demonstrative welcome at half-past eight in the morning, Clementina had not informed Tommy Annetta of the time of her arrival, and Quixtus had not indulged in superfluous correspondence with Huckabee. The odd trio, now so closely related, stood lonely at the exit of the Lyon station, while porters deposited their luggage in cabs. Each of the elders felt a curious reluctance to part, even for a few hours, for they had agreed to lunch together. Sheila shed a surprised tear. She had adjusted her small mind to the entrance of her uncle Ephraim into her life. The sudden exit startled her. On his promising to see her very soon, she put her arms prettily round his neck and kissed him. He drove off, feeling the flower-like pressure of the child's lips to his, and it was very sweet. It helped him to take up the threads of Paris where he had left them, a difficult task. Deep shame smote him. What could be henceforward his relations with Huckabee, whom, with crazy malevolent intent, he promised to maintain in the path of clean living? With what self-respect could he look into the eyes of Mrs. Fontaine, innocent and irreproachable woman, whose friendship he had cultivated with such dastardly design? She had placed herself so frankly, so unsuspectingly, in his hands. To him, now, it was as unimaginable to betray her trust as to betray that of the child whose kiss lingered on his lips. If ever a woman deserved compensation, full and plenteous, at the hands of man, that was the woman. An insult unrealised is none the less an insult, and he, Quixtus, had insulted a woman. If only to cleanse his own honour from the stain, he must make compensation to this sweet lady. But how? By faithful and loyal service. When he solemnly reached this decision, I think that more than one angel wept, and at the same time wanted to shake him. And behind these two whom he would meet in Paris, 
loomed the forbidding faces of Billiter and Vandermeer. He shivered as at contact with something unclean. He had chosen these men as ministers of evil. He had taken them into his crazy confidence. With their tongues in their cheeks, these rogues had exploited him. He remembered loathsome scenarios of evil dramas they had submitted. Thank heaven for the pedantic fastidiousness that had rejected them. Billiter, Vandermeer, Huckabee, the only three of all men living who knew the miserable secret of his recent life. In a rocky wilderness he could have raced with wild gestures like the leper, shouting, Unclean! Unclean! But Paris is not a rocky wilderness, and the semi-extinct quadruped in the shafts of the modern Paris fiacre conveys no idea of racing. Yet, while his soul cried this word of horror, the child's kiss lingered as a sign, and a consecration. The first thing to do was to set himself right with Huckabee. Companionship with the man on the recent basis was impossible. He made known his arrival, and an hour afterwards, having bathed and breakfasted, he sat with Huckabee in the pleasant courtyard of the hotel. Huckabee, neat and trim and clear-eyed, clad in well-fitting blue serge, gave him the news of the party. Mrs. Fontaine had introduced him to some charming French people whose hospitality he had ventured to accept. She was well, and full of plans for little festas for the remainder of their stay in Paris. Lady Louisa had found a cavalier, an elderly French marquis of deep gastronomic knowledge. "'Lady Louisa,' said he, with a sigh of relief and a sly glance at Quixters, "'is a charming lady, but not a highly intellectual companion.' "'Do you really crave highly intellectual companions, Huckabee?' asked Quixters. Huckabee bit his lip. "'Do you remember our last conversation?' he said at last. "'I remember,' said Quixters. "'I asked you for a chance. You promised. I was in earnest.' "'I wasn't,' said Quixters. Huckabee started and gripped the arm of his chair. He was about to protest when Quixters checked him. "'I want you to know,' said he, the great changes have taken place since then. I left Paris in ill health. I return sound. I should like you to grasp the deep significance underlying those few words. I will repeat them." He did so. Huckabee looked hard at his patron, who stood the scrutiny with a grave smile. "'I think I understand,' he replied slowly. "'Then Billiter and Vandermeer?' "'Billiter and Vandermeer I put out of my life for ever but I shall see that they are kept from want." "'They can't be kept from wanting more than you give them,' said Huckabee, whose brain worked swiftly and foresaw blackmail. "'You must impose conditions.' "'I never thought of that,' said Quixters. "'Set a thief to catch a thief,' said the other bitterly. "'I'm telling you for your own good. If they attempt to write to me or see me, their allowances will cease.' He covered his eyes with his hand, as though to shut out their hateful faces. There was a short silence. Huckabee's lips grew dry. He moistened them with his tongue. "'And what about me?' he asked at last. Quixus drew away his hand with a despairing gesture, but made no reply. "'I suppose you're right in classing me with the others,' said Huckabee. "'Heaven knows I oughtn't to judge them. I was in with them all the time,' Quixus winced. But I can't go back to them. My treating you just the same as them won't necessitate your going back to them. Huckabee bent forward, quivering in his chair. As a god in heaven, Quixus, I wouldn't accept a penny from you on those terms. And why not? 
because I don't want your money. I want to be put in a position to earn some honourably for myself. I want your help as a man, your sympathy as a human being. I want you to help me to live a clean, straight life. I kept the promise, the important promise I made you, ever since we started. You can't say I haven't. And since you left, I have not touched a drop of alcohol. And if you promise to help me, I swear to God I never will, as long as I live. What can I do, man? he cried, throwing out his arms, to prove to you that I am in deadly earnest. Quixtus lay back in his chair, reflecting, his fingertips joined together. Presently a smile, half humorous, half kindly, lit up his features, a smile such as Huckabee had not seen since before the days of the hostless dinner of disaster, and it was manifest to Huckabee that some at least of the Quixtus of old had come back to earth. "'In the last day or two, said Quixtus, "'I formed a staunch friendship with one who was a crabbed and inveterate enemy. "'It is Miss Clementina Wing, the painter, "'whom you saw in somewhat painful circumstances the other day at the tea-room. "'I will give you an opportunity, I hope many, of meeting her again. "'I don't want to hurt your feelings, my dear Huckabee, "'but so many strange things have happened of late that I, for the present, "'mistrust my own judgment. "'I hope you understand.' "'Not quite. You don't mean to tell—' Quixus flushed and drew himself up. "'After twenty years, do you know me so little as that?' "'I beg your pardon,' said the other humbly. Again Quixus smiled at a reminiscent phrase of Clementina's. "'At any rate, my dear fellow,' said he, "'even if she doesn't approve of you, she will do you a thundering lot of good.' At the smile Huckabee took heart of grace. But at the same time the memory of Clementina, storming over the tea-table, for all the world like a French revolutionary general, filled his soul with wholesome dismay. Well, there was no help for it. He must take his chance. So he filled a philosophic pipe. A little later Quixtus met the spotless flower of womanhood whom he had so grievously insulted. She greeted him with both hands outstretched. Without him Paris had been a desert. Why had he not sent her the smallest, tiniest line of news? Ah, she understood. It had been a sojourn of pain. Never mind. Paris, she hoped, would prove to be an anodyne. Only if she would administer it in the right doses, said Quixtus gallantly. Dressed with exquisite demureness, she found favour in his sight. He realised with a throb of thanksgiving that henceforward he could meet her on equal terms, as an honourable gentleman no grotesque devilry haunting the back of his mind and clouding the serenity of their intercourse. "'Tell me what you have been doing with yourself,' she said, drawing him to a seat. The little air of intimacy and ownership so delicately assumed captivated the remorseful man. He had not realised the charm that awaited him in Paris. He touched lightly on Marseilles happenings, spoke of his guardianship, of Sheila, of her clinging feminine ways, drew a smiling picture of his terror when Clementina had first left him alone with the child. Mrs. Fontaine laughed sympathetically at the tale, and then, with a touch of tenderness in her voice that perhaps was not deliberate, said, "'In spite of the worries, you have benefited by the change. You have come back a different man.' "'In what way?' "'I can't define it.' "'Try.' A quick glance met earnest questioning in his eyes. She looked down and daintily plucked at the sunshade across her lap. "'I should say you had come back more human.' Quixtus's eyelids flickered. Clementina had used the same word. 
Was there then an obvious transformation from Quixtus Furens to Quixtus Sane? He remembered the child's kiss. Perhaps it's my new responsibilities, he said with a smile. I should so much like to see her. I wonder if I ever shall, said Mrs. Fontaine. She's coming here to lunch with Miss Wing, replied Quixtus, eager now that his good friends should know and appreciate each other. Won't Lady Louisa and yourself join us? Delighted, said Mrs. Fontaine. Miss Clementina Wing is quite a character. I should like to see more of her. Quixtus, his mind full of sweet atonement, did not detect any trace of acidity in her words. On the stroke of one, the time appointed for luncheon, Clementina and Sheila appeared at the end of the long lounge, Tommy and Etta straggling in their wake. Quixtus rose from the table where his three friends were seated and advanced to meet them. Sheila ran forward, and he took her in his arms and kissed her. "'You didn't ask these children to lunch, but I brought them.' "'They're very welcome,' said Quixtus, smiling. Tommy, his fair face aflame with joy, wrung his hand. "'I told you I would look you up in the Hotel Continental. By Jove, I'm glad to see you. I've been an awful ass, you know. Of course I thought—' "'Hush, hush,' said Quixtus. "'My dear Mr. Concaron, I'm delighted to see you.' "'She goes by the name of Etta.' said Tommy proudly. Clementina jerked her thumb towards them. "'Engaged, young idiots!' "'My dear Miss Etta,' said Quixus, taking the hand of the furiously blushing girl, "'my friend Tommy is an uncommonly lucky fellow.' He nodded at Sheila, who hung on to his fingertips. "'Have you made friends with this young lady?' "'She's a darling,' cried Etta. "'Clementina,' said Tommy, "'you're a wretch. You shouldn't have given us away.' You gave yourselves away, you silly geese. People have been grinning at you all the time you were walking here. Then her glance fell upon the expectant trio a little way off. Oh, Lord, she said, those people again. They're my very good friends, said Quixtus, and I want you to meet them again in normal circumstances. I want you to like them. He looked at her in mild appeal. Clementina's lips twisted into a wry smile. All right, she said. Don't worry, I'll be civil. So it came to pass that the two women again faced each other. Mrs. Fontaine, all daintiness and fragrance, in her simple but exquisitely cut fawn costume, the chaste contours of her face set off by an equally simple ten-guinea black hat with an ostrich feather. Clementina, rugged, powerful, untidy in her ill-fitting mustardy-brown stuff skirt and jacket, and heavy business-like shoes, and again between the two pairs of eyes was the flicker of rapiers. And as soon as they were disengaged, and Clementina turned to Lady Louisa, she felt the other's swift glance travel from the soles of her feet to the rickety old rose in her hat. There are moments when sex gives a woman eyes in the back of her head. She turned round quickly, and surprised the most elusive ghost of a smile imaginable. For the first time in her life Clementina felt herself at a disadvantage. She winced, then mentally, so as to speak, snapped her fingers. What had she to do with the woman, or the woman with her? All the presentations having been made, Quixus led the way to the restaurant of the hotel. Clementina, said he, may I ask you to concede the place of honour for this occasion to my unexpected but most charming and most welcome guest? He indicated Etta still blushing, into whose ears Tommy whispered that his uncle always spoke like a penny-book with the covers off. My dear man, said Clementina, stick me anywhere, so long as it's next to the baby, and I can see that nobody feeds her on anchovies and lobster salad. 
she understood perfectly. The second seat of honour was Mrs. Fontaine's. She confounded Mrs. Fontaine, but what was Mrs. Fontaine to her, or she to Mrs. Fontaine? They took their places at the round table laid for eight. On Quixote's right, Etta. On his left, Mrs. Fontaine. Then Sheila, somewhat awed at the grown-up luncheon party, and squeezing Pinky very tight so as to give her courage. Then Clementina, with Huckabee as left-hand neighbour. Then Lady Louisa, and Tommy next to Etta. Clementina kept her word, and behaved with great civility. Tommy politely addressed Lady Louisa, to the immense relief of Huckabee, who thus temporarily freed from his Martha, plunged into eager conversation with Clementina about her picture in the salon, which had attracted considerable attention. He did not tell her that, in order to refresh his memory of the masterpiece, he had revisited the Grand Palais that morning. He praised the technique. There was to it that hint of Velasquez, which so many portrait painters tried for, and so few got. This pleased Clementina. Velasquez was the god of her art. One bright spot in her dreary youth was her life with Velasquez in Madrid. "'I, too, once tried to know something about him,' said Huckabee. "'I wrote a monograph—a wretched compilation only—in a series of Lives of Great Painters for a firm of publishers.' Hard work or not, the authorship of A Life of Velasquez was enough to prejudice her in Huckabee's favour. She learned, too, that he was a sometime fellow of Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, and a university contemporary of Quixtus. Huckabee, finding her not the rough-termed virago from whom Quixtus had always shrunk, and of whom, at that one meeting in the tea-room, he himself had not received the suavest impression, but a frank, intelligent woman, gradually forgot his anxiety to please, and talked naturally, as became a man of his scholarship. The result was that Clementina thought him a pleasant and sensible fellow, an opinion which she expressed later in the day to Quixtus. With regard to Mrs. Fontaine, her promise of ladylike behaviour was harder to keep. All through the meal her dislike grew stronger. The Quixtus should bend towards Etta in his courtly fashion, and pay her little gallant attentions, was but natural. Indeed, it was charming courtesy towards Tommy's betrothed. But that he should do the same to Mrs. Fontaine, and add to it a subtle shade of intimacy, was exasperating. In the lady's attitude, too, towards Quixtus, Clementina perceived an air of proprietorship, a triumphant consciousness of her powers of fascination. When Quixtus addressed a remark across the table to Clementina, Mrs. Fontaine adroitly drew his attention to herself. Her manner gave Clementina to understand that, although a frump of a portrait painter might be an important person in her studio, yet in the big world outside the attractive woman had victorious pre-eminence. Now Clementina was a woman, and one whose nature had lately gone through unusual convulsions. She found it difficult to be polite to Mrs. Fontaine. Only once was there a tiny eruption of the volcano. She had seat at the table being too low for her small body, Clementina demanded a cushion from the maître d'hôtel. When, after some delay, a waiter brought it, she was engaged in talk with Huckabee. She, she turned in time to see Mrs. Fontaine about to lift Sheila from her seat. With a sudden rough movement she all but snatched the child out of the other's arms, and herself sought a Sheila's sedentary comfort. She didn't care what Quixtus or anyone else thought of her. She was not going to have this alien woman touch her child. The hussy flirtation with Quixtus she could not prevent, but no woman born of woman should come between her and the beloved child of her adoption. 
the incident passed almost unnoticed. The meal ended pleasantly. With the exception of the two women in their mutual attitude, everybody was surprisedly delighted with everybody else. Etta thought Quixus the very dearest thing, next to Admiral Concannon, that had ever a bald spot on the top of his head. Clementina, in a fit of graciousness, gave Huckabee the precious freedom of her studio. He could come and look at her pictures whenever he liked. Sheila, made much of, went away duly impressed with her new friends. Quixtus rubbed his hands at the success of his party. The apparently irreconcilable were reconciled, difficulties were vanishing rapidly, his path stretched out before him in rosy smoothness. But Tommy's quick eyes had noticed the snatching of Sheila. "'Etta,' said he, "'I've known Clementina intimately all these years, and I find I know nothing at all about her.' "'What do you mean?' asked the girl. "'For the first time in my life,' said he, "'I've just discovered that the dear old thing is as jealous as a cat.'" End of chapter 19